Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 382. Tonight we light the final eight lights of the Meneda. And with that we conclude the eight-day festival of Hanukkah. It's called Zeis Hanukkah. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menucha Lena, Miriam Baschai Sara Altes, and Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Bas Libor Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todres ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altes. So why is it called Zeis Hanukkah? So the simple reason is because in the Torah we read, all the days of Hanukkah we read about the Hanukkah HaMizbeach, the dedication of the altar, as related in Sefer Bamidbar and Parsha Noseh, because Hanukkah was the Hanukkah Samizbeach, was the rededication after it was defiled and desecrated by the Greeks. So we read on this eighth day of Hanukkah, we read Zeus Hanukkah Samizbeach. This is like the conclusion of the Hanukkah, the dedication of the Mizbeach, and therefore Zeus Hanukkah. But obviously, it's not just a connection to the reading of the Torah. It tells us about the very muhus, the personality of the day. So again, on a very basic level, Zeus, this is Chanukah Samizbech. Zeus, now you can point. You can point and say, this is it, because now you have the whole culmination, the apex, the climax of Chanukah. We know that there are the two opinions, Beshamim and Beisilel, in the order of how we light Chanukah candles. Do you begin, as Shammai says, from eight candles the first night and you go downward until one candle the last night? Or according to Hillel, and that's the halacha, you begin with one and you climb toward the eight. And each of the reasons are told in the Talmud. One of the reasons Chanukah, the Rosh Tevis of Chanukah is that's an acronym of the letters of Chanukah. So the Allah is Kibesil. So according to Basil, clearly, when do you see the full glory of Hanukkah? When you see the eight lights. One of the explanations in this distinction between them, Shammai says, Pari Hachag, because the Pari Hachag and Sukkis descended. You began with 70 and then it went lower and lower. Well, total of 70, rather. But each day it went lower the offerings. Hillel said, Mylam Bekedish, and everything that's holy, you grow and you ascend. But what's the logic behind it? So, one of the reasons is because Shammai, we find a consistent theory by Shammai that he goes according to Koyach, potential. Since the potential for all eight days is there in day one, right away you act on the potential. Hillel goes on the actual, what we see, what is actual. And the actuality is the, the miracle is when you see eight days, that's when you light eight candles. So Zeish Chanukah Samizbeach is now we can point and say here is the full capacity. One of the talks that Rebbe gave to the children at Sivas Hashem, I believe it was Tav Shimem Beis, could be 1982 or 81. The Rebbe said then, in the language of children, he says, so every light, when we light a candle, it's near mitzvah teireh. It represents the, the candle of mitzvah and the, and the, and the light of teireh that helps fan the flame of Ner Hashem Nishmasadam, the soul of a human being, being the flame of God. So when you light the first day, you ignite part of that Nisham. The second day, even more. And on the eighth day, in the language of Sivas Hashem, the Rebbe says the full onslaught, 
It's like when you use the full forces of your army to fight the darkness of the world, to fight the animal soul, to fight the temptations of this material world. So each day you go, you grow and grow until there's the full assault. Obviously assault here means in a positive way. It's a spiritual war, which was the theme of Hanukkah in the first place. The Yavonim, the Greeks, did not want to destroy the Jews physically. They wanted to destroy, destroy their spirituality. They didn't have a problem with Torah as an academic book of a philosophy or mitzvahs as moral and ethical code. They had a problem that it was Torah, God's Torah. Why are you sanctifying it? Which is representative of the pure oil, the purity. Because technically you can light a menorah even if it's not pure oil. But the point was it has to be pure because that's what they wanted to defile, the purity, the sanctity, the holiness of it. So it all comes back to the central theme. And on the eighth day of Hanukkah, all this comes to full fruition. So someone asked the question, it's called Zeish Hanukkah because it's the brightest of all eight nights of Hanukkah. Yes, you light all eight candles. But if the purpose is to increase in light, why do we stop at eight? Why not light every night all year long? What's special about the eighth candle that it's light endures for the rest of the year? Well, there you have it. You're answering the same, answering your, very, your own question. You could ask the same question on every Yom Tif. Rosh Hashanah is Mamshech Malchus, renewing the year, renewing life, renewing existence, the birthday of the human race. So why is it only two days? Why is it not all year long? Same thing with Yom Kippur, same thing with Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. Because the point of it is that we have a certain time of the year, which is the energy of that time, focuses on a particular theme, and then the point is to be mamshechit and perpetuate it all year long. That's exactly the power of Zeis Hanukkah. It carries the whole Hanukkah into the rest of the year. Now the Gemara says, as someone who says halal every day, is as if they're insulting God. Why not say halal? You want to praise God every day? No, because when you start praising it every day, you start taking it for granted. That's an additional point. So the holiday has its particular focus. Then it's our, jo- it's our job to take it, to perpetuate it. That's why the Alter Rebbe didn't put Chasal Seder Pesach in the Haggadah, because you have to, it means that we conclude the Seder Pesach, because we don't conclude it. We continue on the energy of Pesach, of freedom, of transcendence, of everything that Pesach represents throughout the entire year. So that's the whole point of holidays. They give us a gift. And then we have to unpack the gift. So that even emphasizes even more the power of Zeis because it's like the transition. It takes the entire eight days and comes to a culmination. Now we deliver it and bring that light into the entire year, which is the effort that we make, we initiate, with the power that Hanukkah gives us. One more point in Zeis Hanukkah. There are different things in different Svarim talk about Zeis Hanukkah. And um, it's interesting that the word Hanukkah itself, why is it called Hanukkah? So the simple reason is because of the dedication. But Shalosh says it's also from the name education. It's education because the Yavonim wanted to destroy the very core and soul of Jewish education. So Hanukkah represents the Hanukkah Sa'elam educating, not just uh, dedicating the temple, but re-educating, re-dedicating the entire world. And that's why it begins on the 25th of Kislev, like the creation of the world was the 25th of Elul. 
three months ago, to the 25th of Tishrei, one to Cheshvan, to Kislev, three months ago, because this, in a sense, affirms and rededicates and re-educates and reconnects that education of the entire world. That's what he calls it. What I wanted to add was that Semach Tzedek says, so therefore Zeus Hanukkah would be the culmination of Zeus Hanukkah. This is the education. So when you see the eight candles and we build toward it, because that's the process of education, you don't jump. You go step by step. You teach a child, you educate a child according to his way or her way, and that's a step-by-step process. Then Hanukkah comes, the eight candles are burning, so you have the complete so-called education of the individual and of the world. The Tzemach Tzedek, in a mimer, Baruch Sha'osanissim, which is actually an Alter Rebbe's mimer, that he said in Tovkuf Samach, it was a mimer, Baruch Sha'osanissim, Lavesenu, and he said, when he spelled it out, he said, Lavesen, just like the Nisim of Hanukkah and Purim, so too, now then, so too, Yutas Kislev. So it's a famous mimer, the Rebbe talks about it, the Rebbe published it as a separate pamphlet with footnotes, so at the end of that Maimon, the Tzemach Tzedek Kabbalistically explains that Zeus Hanukkah, has, since it's the eighth day, has in the two interpretations he actually brings there. One is that it's Mamshech from Atik, which is like the highest level, into the seven Midas. So it's the, se- the seven higher emotions of the divine transcendence is transmitted into structure of existence. And also from the bottom up, Oz, that that it goes on the opposite, that it refers to Malchus, the eighth day. And Malchus elevates to the highest levels. This is an Eirat Teda in uh, the Maimer of Baruch Shas and Nisim. At the end of the Maimer, just to read the actual language, he says like this. Okay, so the first interpretation I just said was Atik, and that's Zeis Chanuk Zeis is Malchus. And elsewhere he explains in Yenah Hepach Shein Ches Yomayno Aderech Oz Shem Zayin Midas Hamakabim Bchinis Aleph Hu Keser. So one is that's referring to the last level, the Malchus, how it's received from Keser, or from the general higher spheres. Basically, it's the two approaches: whether you go from the top down or from the bottom up, whether you bring the existence and you elevate it to a higher transcendent state. Because remember, eight is always a transcendent state, as the Rajbo says. Seven represents the structure. Eighth represents transcendence. Shemir is a hekef, seven days of the week. The eighth is a transcendent force that protects it. So it's either drawing down the transcendence or it's elevating malchus, the lowest level of the structure, to a level of transcendence. Okay. Now... Next question, also about Hanukkah. Dear Rabbi, in Derech Mitzvah Secha, Hanukkah, this is a Sefer Mitzvah from the Tzemach Tzedek, we learned that the Mizbeach needed Shemen HaMishcha because Kol HaSchol is Koshes. So yes, this is brought from the Kutatera in many places. What is, why do we dedicate the altar? Why do we dedicate the temple? The eight days of dedication? The seven days of dedication leading to Biyem Hashmini, as the Torah tells us, both in Vayikra and then, as I mentioned, the Parashat Nasei. Because whenever you start something, the Alter Rebbe gives the example, you, you, when, you, when you launch something, you always begin with a bang to give it the strength. It's like launching something and giving it all the power it needs to be able to 
sustain and persevere. So because kolas cholas koshes, all beginnings are difficult. So in the beginning, you give it all that strength. It's like when why, that's why when you take a child to school, like he says, the same reason a child needs support and training to prepare for the work required from a yid. And when a child taken to school, the first beginning, the Chanukah, so to speak, the, 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 the dedicating, is always with giving the child gifts and making a big hoo-ha from it because it gives the power to the individual to be able to really go. So whenever you send someone off, let's say a shliach, or you, or you launch a new beginning, a new project, you always do it with a special party, a special celebration to give it that strength. So the questioner is asking, can you please address how a survivor of childhood abuse and neglect can gather strength to be productive? Thanks. How does this apply to a survivor of childhood abuse and neglect? How can they gather strength to be productive? This idea. Well, there are different ways that we gather strength. When God blesses us, so we're born into this world, and we're given as the Alter Rebbe begins Tanya from the Gemara Sofer Gimel Danida. So Mashbiyin, Tzamech Tzedek explains, is not from just a word that they take, the child takes an oath, the soul takes an oath to be a righteous person and not a wicked person, but it also comes from the word Vesavota, Mashbiyin, Vesavota, that the soul is sated, is filled, is, is uh, you can say, downloaded all the energy it will need to be a tzaddik. So we're given that strength. Everybody gets that strength. Every child in its mother's womb learns the entire Torah. Now for further blessed, and our parents are healthy parents and aligned with what God wants and with protecting and nurturing their child, they will continue to give these gifts. That's why a child needs a lot of protection, a lot of nurturing, especially in its earlier years, like we said, because in the beginning, everything is more difficult, so you have to really make sure when you plant the seed, that the seed is very well protected and very well nurtured and nourished, so that when the seed grows into a tree, it will be solid. That's what education is all about. That's Hanukkah. Educating something and training it so that when it has to face the challenges of life, it will have all the necessary resources. No person is given a challenge they don't have the strength to deal with. What happens, unfortunately, when, God forbid, someone grows up in an abusive environment and, and neglect and doesn't have that additional nurturing, we'll call the parents to be the gardeners of this garden called the child. God plants the seeds and God plants the garden and gives it all the strength, but now the parents have to take care of this garden, their home. If they don't, God forbid, do their job adequately, this doesn't mean all is lost. This means that we have to then dig deeper to access those kaychis, those faculties, those resources God gave us, the mashbiyan and the learning the entire Torah, and find alternative, alternative forms of nurturing, whether it's through friends, other family members, building your own home and family, so there's a whole methodology. So Hanukkah is equally relevant. I would say even more so. Because when a child is neglected, God comes into the picture to help. To help supplement and complement that which the parents did not provide. Now this doesn't necessarily mean the question is not just talking about parents. In general, any abuse or neglect can, it will be countered with new energies. But you have to access it. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm definitely not saying... Anyone should not wish it on anyone. 
after the fact, we have to always say that we have the strength to deal with it. So I would say Hanukkah for someone who has experienced some neglect or abuse, is the power of Hanukkah is even stronger, especially Zeus Hanukkah, when we have now, this is the Chinuch, that we have the whole eight lights, all the, the, entire, all the, the entire spectrum of seven, plus eight, plus the transcendent element of Atik. We have that transcendence that allows us to achieve greatness, no matter what we went through in our lives. So nobody is ever deprived of this capacity and this ability. Just a question of how it's done. So if unfortunately someone did not receive the gifts they should have received when they were taken to school the first time, and that means both physically and also psychologically and emotionally, that doesn't mean we can't access it, and maybe that's what Hanukkah is all about. Not all about, but one of the things Hanukkah provides is that those resources, that Hanukkah is every year, it's like renewing the contract. We begin again with a new renewal, a new dedication. And what does it produce? Haneres halolu, as the Ramban says, that these flames will never be eliminated, will never be extinguished. Why? Because it came from the darkness. If you think of the theme of Hanukkah, it's exactly that, that even though there was a darkness and they could not find a Pach Shem, they couldn't find a crucible of pure oil that can burn and can light the menorah, they found the oil, and not only that, the oil burned for eight days. The entire cycle of seven plus the transcendent, which gives it the power to continue on throughout the entire year. So Hanuk is a direct lesson to darkness. And then the light that burns is never extinguished because you cannot extinguish a light that came out of darkness. If it didn't come out of darkness, you can say the light has still not been tested. So it could, unfortunately, be extinguished. Like we see that the Menorah in the temple was extinguished, even though it was a Ner Tamid, an eternal flame like I discussed last week. But then the temple, first temple, and then the second temple was destroyed, including the Menorah. So then you come to a point where you get a flame that never, an eternal, literally an eternal flame that's lit every Hanukkah and on tonight, eight days, and will light us and illuminate the Golas, the darkness of Golas, the darkness both on a personal and a collective level until we march into the full light of the Gula Amitis Vashlema and the third temple and the Menera that will be then lit, an eternal temple that will never be again destroyed. Another Hanukkah-related question. Shabbos comes every week via natural means. The sun rises and sets on a natural schedule and every seven days is Shabbos, correct. But Hanukkah comes through miraculous ways. The oil we found was a miracle and one day's supply of oil lasting eight days was a series of miracles. But we have a halacha that if on a Friday during Hanukkah if we only have one candle, we use it to light the Shabbos candle instead of the Menorah. As the Rambam Paskins, I'm adding, because of Shalom Bayis is more powerful than Pesum publicizing the miracles we discussed also last week. Does this Allah imply that it's more important to celebrate the natural things in the world than the miraculous things? Okay, interesting question. So first of all, it says specifically why. Because when it comes to Ner Shabbos, Bring shalom bayis. Harmony at home is single most important thing of all, the foundation of everything. Pesumanis is publicizing God's miracle, also great. But if you have a choice, you can't, have, you can't light both. Shabbos comes first. Does it imply also that nature greater than miracle? I've never seen it stated, but you could make the argument that once shalom bayis is in place, which really is building the natural structure 
But then you can have celebrate a miracle. Imagine, God forbid, if the house there's no peace at home and you light a Hanukkah candle, it'll 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 publicize the miracle, and it'll be a mitzvah. But when they're publicizing a miracle, when the very home is still uh, is somewhat compromised, so yes, building the natural is the number one foundation, which is why we don't have Hanukkah all year round as well. And then upon that, we build Hanukkah. That's one way you could say it. The general concept of nature and miracle, correct. Nature in general does take precedent to miracle. That's why you say, something that's consistent. The carbon tomid you bring every day. Because it's a certain type of natural routine. And then comes the thing that you add. On Shabbos, first we dive in the three prayers. We dive in Shachris. Then we add Musaf. Even though Musaf is the addition. But that addition comes after the regular. Or regular. I shouldn't call it nothing is regular, but I mean to say the regular routine of davening. So you can perhaps say that, so this explains that Mila, the, the advantage of a miracle that's dressed in nature, because it elevates the very structure of existence. Whereas a miracle that's a revealed miracle, yes, is, is a greater revelation, but not so much greater in the transformation of the very structure of existence. So perhaps that can also be said. Next question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, a famous Hanukkah question is since we found enough oil for one day and it lasted eight days, therefore the miracle was only seven days. So why do we celebrate eight days of Hanukkah? Yeah, the famous Beis Yosef, the different explanations, three explanations, then I recently I saw a sefer that has 1,000 different answers on this question. <laughs> I didn't go through it all, so I can't review them, but this is a question that has been addressed by Achreinim after the base uh, many, many times in many different ways. <clears throat> a common answer is that they knew they could manufacture more, more oil in eight days, because it would take eight days to travel to be able to receive, produce new, new fresh oil. So they conserved and only used one-eighth of the oil they found each day, and the miracle was that each day it lasted all day. Because if they took only an eighth, it should only last an eighth of the day. It lasted all day. So in essence, there were eight separate miracles. That's one of the answers. In that case, then why is there even a machlekes, a disagreement between Shammai and Hillel, whether to light in ascending or descending order? Shouldn't we light all eight candles every night? Not sure the question, because Shammai and Hillel, the disagreement is not about when the miracle is and how the miracle happened. The question is, like we said, koyach and poyol, potential and actual. Or do you go like Poryachag, which is descending, or you go like Mylan Bukedish, which is ascending? Each, of course, they both agree that there's a miracle eight days. That's why they say, Shammai says to light eight days, eight candles right in the beginning. Hill says to light eight candles at the end. So I'm not sure how this explanation would make a difference. Because either way, now, if you want to get into a whole thing and say, okay, the miracle happened the eighth of the day and it lit all day, why doesn't Shammai then, why doesn't Shammai then hold that you only light one? But that goes back to the question, as I said, the potential actual or pariachag in Mylan Bukhadish. So, question came in. That's why I, I read it. Unless there's something more that I'm missing here. Were the Chashmanoi murdered by Malchus by taking over the kingdom when they were not entitled to because their tribal lineage was not from Yehuda? So this is a discussion, I spoke about it last week, where someone asked the question, why do we celebrate the zealots, this, the zealotry of the Maccabees, especially when they defied Shevet Yehuda? The kings come from Yehuda, the Hashemunah, and we're not from there. Shevet Levi. 
Because if so, someone actually followed up on what I responded. So let me read that follow up as well, and I'll respond to the whole, to both questions. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. In your program, you suggested that the Maccabees and Hashmonaim were not dangerous zealots who were terrorizing the community, but rather they were fighting a spiritual war. But history disagrees with you. For close to 150 years, the Hashmonaim killed and deposed legitimate kings of Israel and usurped the throne for themselves. The Maccabees were Kahanim from the tribe of Levi, and they knew that only kings could come from Yehuda and not from them. So they took it by force with weapons and violence. So why do we celebrate throne-stealing murderous monsters? Well, Svarim talk about this and discuss the whole issue of the Hashmonaim, and I did not say that there weren't elements of their behavior that is a problem, or worse than a problem. I was talking about the particular miracle of Hanukkah is not a celebration of the Hashmonaim. It's a celebration of one aspect of what they did, which we do honor and celebrate. So even though, yes, some of the things they did were inappropriate, but the bottom line is, when it came to the desecration of the temple, they did beat and fight and beat the Greeks and allowed for the miracle of Hanukkah to, to take place. So this isn't about a celebration. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned, the celebration is not about the war. Even though there are opinions that we also mentioned that and there, uh, we also mentioned the war, but the main celebration is through my Hanukkah by lighting candles, lighting flames, because the emphasis is on the spirituality of the victory, that the Hashmonoim were shluchim, whether they were appropriate or not, but they were shluchim to achieve that. That's the bottom line. When a doctor saves your life, even if the doctor is not perfect, or far from perfect, you still make a bruchus hanisim. This was a big question when Entebbe happened, the miraculous uh, the, the, the rescue of those Israelis that were hijacked. So the Rebbe spoke about make a bruchus hanisim. There were those that said, Anisim because of what happened. It was a miracle. There were those that said, but the miracle happened through people who are not believers, so to speak. Like the Six-Day War. But that doesn't change anything. I'm not comparing the Hashmonaim to them. I'm just saying the miracle is of the miracle. The result of what happened was the celebration. The celebration is what? Of the redemption and the, and the freeing of the pure olive oil, which represented the purity and sanctity of Teirah. Oil, pure oil. Tereseha, who could it say necha, as I mentioned. So yes, the, the, the issues of what the Hashmonaim did over the years, and that's not what we're discussing here. Two separate things completely. Why do we often talk about male heroes in our history and neglect to remember the female heroes? Yes, Matasyon, Judah, Maccabee, Yudah, Maccabee did great things to help kick the Hellenists out of the Beis Amigdash and then clean it up so it could be used for holy purposes again. But they couldn't have done it if Yehudis didn't risk her life by seducing the Greek general, giving him strong wine, and then when he fell asleep, drunk, she chopped off his head. When the Greek army saw their general was decap decapitated, they didn't know what to do next, and they panicked, and that's precisely the moment the Maccabees attacked and were able to defeat them during the confusion. Women power. Don't erase us and the important contributions we made to history. God forbid... It's absolutely mentioned and should be celebrated. Avhein Hoyeba Isa Nessa says about Hanukkah that the women too are part of the miracle. In many ways, primary. The Rebbe talks about it both by Purim, Esther, Amalka, Yehudis in Hanukkah, in Pesach, Beschus Nashim Sidkonius, in the merit of the righteous women, they were redeemed. The fact that some people may, may neglect to mention it or don't emphasize it enough, that's because they're not. 
that's not necessarily a justification. The fact of the matter is that women have always played a prominent role, especially when there was a crisis. And we do honor it, and we do respect it, and we do in every possible way. Go into any healthy Jewish home and tell me the role of a woman. It's a leadership role. It's not a secondary role. The fact that some men, due to their own stuff, has nothing to do with Torah and Yiddishkeit and holiness, are male, are dominant, that's like part of society, the social issues that are inappropriate. The fact that the matter is in the cave to save of government, especially as we come to Mashiach's times, women will be, will recognize the power of the woman, the feminine energy, and all the different explanations given for that. So let's not, yes, I totally agree with you, let's not in any way minimize. On the contrary, we need to celebrate equal and some ways even, even superior role in many of the miracles and many of the events that happen, Hanukkah and other times during Jewish history. Okay. With that, let us now go. It's also a Pashas Vayigash. And it is also, this week will also be Hey Tavis. So let me start with Vayigash and then I'll go to Hey Tavis, fifth of Tavis. Lessons from Vayigash. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it is suggested by, by Mefarshim, by commentaries, that Yaakov was punished and didn't get to see his beloved son Yosef for over 20 years because Yaakov left his father Yitzhak for over 20 years to work for Lovin in order to earn an agreement to marry Lovin's daughters plus the time he spent learning at the yeshiva of Shem and Eber. If Yaakov was somehow wrong for leaving his father's house, how do we reconcile this with the commandment of Lech Lecha Tavram and it's lesson to us that at a certain time we at a certain time we have to leave our parents' house and move away and become ourselves. According to the logic of these commentaries, wouldn't Avram also be wrong for leaving his parents? Well, let's add a question to another question. Who sent Yaakov away from his home? He didn't go on his own. It was, it was Yitzchak and Rivka that sent him away for two reasons. First of all, because of Esav's wrath and it was dangerous. Secondly, most importantly, to find a shidduch. So he was sent away by that. It's true that they didn't say how long it would be, and because of the extra seven years working for Rachel, because of Lovin's deception, added another seven years, and total of 20 years. But bottom line is, it was not Yaakov's decision exactly. It was Lovin's deception that caused those extra seven years. And it was God that wanted him to be there. And yet, you do find the, the element that you say that, that Yaakov, because the pale mamish, in actuality, he did not honor his parents because he wasn't there for them. So in many ways, that's what Yosef did not have the, time, the ability to honor him and the pain that came from that. But no one's, nowhere does it say that Yosef was sold into slavery and all that happened because Yaakov didn't do that. It says there's an element of that, of that due to Yaakov's behavior. How do you explain that? So Zakshriya brings a Zoyar that explains it very clearly and about a completely different topic. It's a story with the Yunuka, a child that met Rabbi Abnuna Saba. Abnuna Saba, and he, and he said that I sense on your garments, I sense in your garments that you're lacking a mitzvah, the mitzvah of helping bury the, and honoring those that passed on. What's the story? Rabbi Abnuna Saba was going to a Levaya, which is a mitzvah to honor someone as they go on to the next world. 
But then there was Achnosis Kala. So we know that, that when it comes to Achnosis Kala, a, a, a bride going to her marriage canopy, that is more powerful than everything else. And you, and you move away from the Levi, you go to be Achnosis Kala, is stronger than. How do you explain that? Because Eisig be mitzvah, put them in a mitzvah. When you're busy with a mitzvah, you're freed from that mitzvah. So then why did he smell something? Because kemanda ovid le'amrinan is the expression. Bottom line is, yes, it's true. He would not sin, God forbid. He didn't have a fundamentally problem here. But still, he didn't do this mitzvah. Every mitzvah has its amshach, has its particular energy. So it's true, this energy of, of, of greeting a, a bride and honoring a bride is, a strong, is one that encompasses, like the Ragat Shavar explains, the Chassidus explains, that every mitzvah has all the mitzvahs within it. But still, that particular amshokha that comes from Rechid Levashayach, he did not have. So though Yaakov was a very good reason where he was, especially when you know the Aveda of Yaakov with the chain, with the sheep of Lovon, was not stopped. It was not just regular. He was elevating sparks. He was preparing the ground for the transformation of the universe. That's what Yaakov was doing those 20 years. He wasn't just sitting around, God forbid. And he was building the entire Jewish nation. All the tribes were born there over during those 20 years, except Binyamin later. So he, was not, so he was doing something fundamental. But still, the bottom line is that he was not able to do. So it's not his fault. So in a sense, since there's a lack of that Amshach, so he too had the lack of that, that, that Amshach, of that transmission, that Yosef would have honored him. So what you see from this is that there are many times in life we have certain opportunities and we need to do them. But then if something was lacking, even though there was complete justification, you have to, you have to make up for it. You have to find a way to make up for it. You go out of Miftzoyim, you go out on a Miftzah campaign, on Shlichus, and sometimes because of that, you couldn't learn as much as you had to learn that day. That doesn't mean you're absolved. It means, yes, that's what you had to do. And by doing that, like it says, Zdoka, when you give charity, it makes it causes your mind and your heart to be refined thousandfold. And as the Rebbe brings from the Samach Sadiq, that it's not an exaggeration, that that which took you to learn, that would take you regularly to study at 1,000 hours, you can now do in one hour. But still, so therefore it definitely helps, but still you need to do the one hour. So this is a common theme throughout Tehreth, uh, especially in Chassidus. Okay. My next question why did Yeshav say, Oid Ovichai? Why is my father still alive instead of is our Avinuchai? Oid Avinuchai. Is our father still alive? It was the father of all of them. Right when Yeshav finally reveals himself, he couldn't control himself after Yehuda's sacrifice for his brother Binyamin. So it finally evoked. And at that point, Yeshav demonstrated to them. And said to them, showed to them that he's Yosef. He said, this question was, he says, is, our fa- is my father still alive? Why did he say, is our father still alive? Was Yosef separating himself from his brothers? Was Yosef perhaps not so enthusiastic to see his brothers after what they did to him? Well, on one hand, you see clearly that Yosef said, don't be perturbed, even though the brothers were extremely embarrassed after what they did. Because God sent me here. But at the same time, you can't say that Yisra was completely oblivious. So the clay yoker does say the following. He says, why did he say my father, my father, not our father? Because you, he was essentially hinting that you had dishonored him by lying to him about me, by saying that I was dead. 
and not telling them the truth. So in a sense, he was talking my connection with my father. That's what the Klei Yoker says. It's interesting that Samach Tzedek, in a very fascinating mimer, short mimer, he explains, Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, and we're going to talk about this later in the Chassidus, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya that we should learn from Yosef, the Zer says what we learn from Yosef, how he treated his brothers, where he did not, did not no retribution and no, and no um, um, vet, re- revenge or vengeance, that we learn from that. And yet we see that Yosef also put them through uh, somewhat of a challenge. He put them through agony. So how do you reconcile the two? And that will also help understand why Yosef was hinting to this when at the same time he said, don't be disturbed. I'm, I, I was sent here by God, not by you, to save you and our family and the Jewish people and all of us. So we'll talk about it a little later in Chassidus' question. Okay. So let's talk about Hey Tavis now. Hey Tavis in the year Tavshimem Zayin, which is 35 uh, years ago, yes, Mem Zayin, 35 years ago, the famous story of the victory of the Svarim, the Dan Notzach. And the Rebbe made it clear that this was not some personal court case between family members who, who belonged to the Svarim. It represented the very essence of Teireh and Chassidus, the Svarim are the essence, a non nafshik sovis yehovis, of what the Rabbeim represent. Therefore, it's not private property. It's no one's private property. It's the Torah of the Rabbeim. Every sefer they had was part of them. Like the Rebetzin said, which was finally the clinching argument, when she was asked, who did the Svarim belong to? The Chassidim or the Rebbe? So she said, the Rebbe himself belongs to the Chassidim which tells you the essence of what a Rebbe is, and by extension, his belongings. This Svarim. And put it in more blunt terms. If the books would be individual property, where would be the Nitzchias of the Rabbeim if it wasn't through their Torah and their Svarim? Yes, I understand. You could say you could still learn their Mamorim and their Sichas. But they began with the Rabbeim. Their Svarim was the place where they manifested they used these Svarim. They wrote these Svarim in some cases. But even those they didn't write, that they belonged to them, is part of that larger case of what a Rebbe is about. A Rebbe is Nitzchi. The Rebbe is not an individual. He's not a private citizen. So what's the way we celebrate Tevis? Through learning Svarim. Through learning in these Svarim. That was the Rebbe's main focus. Every holiday has its way of celebrating. Hanukkah we celebrate through remembering the power of the flames that were re- relit, and the miracle. So we light flames, the flame of Ne'er Mitzvah spiritual flames which are represented by these physical flames. Hey Tevis, the miracle is the victory of the Svarim, that now the Svarim are eternal, that means they have to learn them. If they sit on a shelf, you're essentially defying the very nature of this day. The day is about redeeming the Svarim, that they should be used and learned. They're not just part of a collection, they're not just part of a sale, but they're part of the entire picture of Chassidus, Teireh, Chabad, how it lives on. And that is indeed what Heitavis is about. So practically speaking on Heitavis, that's what, what our job is to do. Learn, increase in learning, buying Svarim, giving Svarim as gifts, but above all to use them in the fullest sense of the word. And that's why the Rebbe, that first Heitavis, the Rebbe said to print the Rechamuna, because that was one of the books that was taken to demonstrate the reprinting and the learning. And the Rebbe talked about a sikhi, explained 
beautiful, very profound idea in Chassidus based on the Derech which is from Meir Ibn Gabai, the Baal Avedis HaKadosh. Okay. The next, we move now to some topics that are um, unrelated directly to Hanukkah and Vayigash and Hei but everything is connected, of course. So let's begin with, firstly, let's begin with a follow-up. Last week I spoke about uh, crowdfunding and it was also uh, connected to our crowdfunding, which I want to use this opportunity to thank all of you who donated so generously. We reached over the million dollar goal that we set, even though that was like a surprise that came later as we saw the momentum. So I want to thank each of you who donated. People have asked me whether they still can donate. Yes, it's still open. Go to giftofmeaning.com. You can donate. Hanukkah is appropriate time. Hanukkah guilt. It's also the end of the year. So giftofmeaning.com. One person wrote the following. Um, I have this uh, anonymous writer that writes all these very f- flowery titles on me. So I'll read it exactly as he writes. It's just I find it always a little amusing. To our intergalactic, inimitable, virtual mashpia. And Abiyah tour guide, Reb Simon. Abiyah is not Silas Keep up the phenomenal work. I just donated to your work. I would have added this to my donation, but then you would have outed me. A blessing does not reside except when it's concealed. Happy Hanukkah. Okay. And anonymous is the name of the game. You know that in my life I do not insist, and actually I prefer that people do not necessarily write their names unless you really feel you need to, for, whether to follow up and so on. But I appreciate it. And again, I appreciate everybody that participated. And please go to give, giftofmeaning.com and you can continue to donate and it's going to go to good purposes. And we will, now that we've achieved this, this great goal, we will live up to the trust and the confidence that you have in us in continuing, not just continuing the programs, but expanding and new programs. So stay tuned. In the context of, of, of crowdfunding, another person wrote, Hi, and thanks for all the work you do. Regarding your comments about donating to crowdfunding, I, agree, I agreed with all you said. I spoke last week about prior, prioritization and, 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 uh, and, on, and other related things. But one addition I think you could have mentioned was, that, was what I think it says, maybe in Shulchan Aruch, since I'm not 100% sure, sure I preface it with maybe, but it's correct. The concept of when choosing where to give charity, the poor of your community come first. Means the poor of your city take precedent over poor from another city. Today, since we live in a global community, that may not apply all over, but it still applies because you're still living in a city and does take priority. But when choosing an organization, I would venture to say that a local one should get more priority Thanks and keep up the good work. Okay. Uh, as I said, talk to Amashpia, talk to Arav, and prioritize accordingly. Um, it definitely comes into account Ania Ircha as well as organizations, but there are also organizations that may be helpful to you. Like, for example, our organization, and not, not making a pitch here, does help people all over the world. So, many ways, we're local to that person that it helps. But again, this should be determined by yourself and your own discretion. 
with a mashpia, with an objective person, a rov if necessary, to determine that. But thank you for your comments. Okay. Another letter came in, which was very touching, and I felt I should read it. It's about treating people kindly. What can be done about people not treating others in a kind way? Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. I want to share a a short story to highlight the benefits of treating people kindly and respectfully. I'm an Apicatus, originally from Crown Heights, and last year I moved to a rural community a few hours upstate. I just want to, I need to make a comment. I don't think anybody can call themselves an Apicatus. First of all, a person never can name, them, name themselves negatively or positively. But I get the idea, it's somewhat, I don't know if tongue-in-cheek is the right word, but basically you're saying that you feel you're that. But like the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe once said, from Kanakan Semichkes Vetmanishkan Apicatus, from cracking uh, sunflower seeds, one doesn't become an apicatus. In other words, you have to earn the way. <laughs> not that it's a, a title exactly that you're looking to earn, but it's not just person just chooses not to believe. So I don't want to go into that topic, but since you're mentioning it, I just felt I should comment. Okay, continuing on. Being that for most of my life I didn't feel accepted in my community, I was happy to be able to live somewhere without religious Jews who would constantly judge me and harass me. And part of the reason I am an Apicatus is because of how I've been treated badly all my life by the community. And again, I want to comment, even though I don't like to do it in the middle of someone's letter, I like to respect the full letter. Well, that alone tells you maybe that it's not, you're not an Apicatus, you're hurt by people. So therefore, the things they represented for you were toxic. Remember, your relationship with God is not dependent on other people. I understand clearly that people, that's called the Chil Hashem, people can desecrate God's name and in some ways taxify God for people. So I understand that. But I think you should be a little, not so harsh on yourself and realize that it's all about individuals that you yourself are going to write in a moment. I just wanted to comment on that. Then I found out there was a Chabad house five minutes up the road from where I live now. At first I was upset. For whatever reason, I decided to drive by there one Friday afternoon to see what it looked like, and I wanted to leave an anonymous, sarcastic letter in their mailbox making fun of the religion. While I was in my car writing the letter, the rabbi came outside and noticed me and walked over to say hello. We started talking, and he was so friendly, kind, and accepting, so I felt it would be wrong for me to leave a sarcastic letter. He even invited me to come for Shabbos lunch. I liked Chont just as much as anyone else, so I accepted the invitation. It was very nice, and the community treated me very well. So the following Shabbos, I went back. This Hanukkah marks the one-year anniversary anniversary that I moved up here, and so far I've been there every Shabbos. Sometimes I'm the tenth person, and there wouldn't have been a minion without me. They are helpful, kind, non-judgmental up here, and I feel the sense of community I've always been lacking. Even though I may not agree with every single thing they believe in, for example, I don't feel it's necessary to have 10 people in a room to pray, but since they believe that, I'm happy to help them by completing their minion. They are all my friends now, and I want to reciprocate the kindness they show, they show me. They show to me. Up here, all Jews are accepted, no matter what their level of observance is. There are no judgments, there is no dress code. I can come into shul wearing dark jeans and boots, and they are still happy to see me. Back in the day, if I were to walk 
into 770 wearing jeans, many people would point at me and laugh at me. The moral of the story is kindness begets kindness. I'm sharing this story for the purpose of hopefully some people in, in Crown Heights and other religious communities will hear it and change their behavior for the better and be kinder and more accepting to their neighbors, even if their beliefs are not on the same level. And hopefully some people on the fringe feeling lost like I felt will also have more opportunities to participate and feel the sense of community. Thank you and happy Hanukkah. And just to be clear, when I criticized Crown Heights, I was generalizing and not implying every single person there was nasty to me. Crown Heights are some amazing good people too. I just wish there were more of those types of people there. Yeah, and I want to second that. Firstly, thank you for writing. And I read it, even though it is a little lush and horror about a community, but I'm glad that you concluded the way you did. And I want to emphasize even more. I would say the majority. The fact that individuals sometimes behave in a way that could be better, so they need improvement. But we shouldn't be part of the problem by escaping. We should keep demanding a higher standard. And that's why I read this letter. Because even if one person is hurt and thousands of others are treated beautifully, that's enough to make a point out of it. Chassidus demands, the whole point of a chassid, as the Alter Rebbe says, you forgo your own good, your own comfort to help another. It's the whole yisad of chassidus. So anytime that's not completely lived up to, we need to make a point of it. Not, but I would speak not in a negative way. It should always be in a positive way. So though I read the letter and it could have come across somewhat critical, I want to make an emphasis. That's, that's the tone of the writer. as a right to speak his pain, his anger, his whatever caused him to feel this way. But I want to say the point here is a positive one. That's my entire objective, which is to point out that we have to constantly, like Hanukkah teaches us, every night lighting another flame. A flame. A flame is not, uh, does not go to war. A flame just shines a light and automatically dispels darkness and automatically illuminates and warms its environment. That's, and every night we have to increase in it. And even after eight days, we continue to increase, spiritually speaking. So the point is well taken. In that context, another question, how to rekindle my connection to Torah? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Lately, I've, I've, been, I've been struggling with a loss of interest in Torah and learning. It began when I was ill with a non-serious but debilitating sickness for several months, and I couldn't pay attention. Now, thank God, I'm feeling much better, but my lack of interest has remained. I feel less connected, and the feeling scares me as a newish Baal Tshuva. Does it mean that, I'm failed, that I've failed the test that might have been in that sickness? What do you make of this period of ambivalence? Is there some way I can rekindle a love of Torah and excitement about learning and feeling of being spiritually charged my every day that has seemed to slip, has seemed to slip, to, to have slipped from my grasp. Thank you and happy Hanukkah. Well, Hanukkah again has an answer. Talk about rekindle. Hanukkah is about kindling lights. The light is within you. Whether you feel it or not, it's always within you. Ne'er Hashem Nishma Sodom, by virtue of your very birthright, your soul is a flame of God, period. It can be like a pilot flame that lays latent or dormant within you and you need to fan the flame, which is why we light a candle. And how do we light it? Through a t- mitzvah, through Torah. I would not be hard on myself. That's my advice to you. Thank God you got out of the sickness. So you thank God for that. Start, do something that's small. It could be find a friend at five minutes a day or whatever you can manage. Learn together. Go do something that helps another person help. Well, now, the last day of Hanukkah, 
to help someone light a mechanical menorah, to put on film for a boy after bar mitzvah, or men, for women to light a candle. Whatever it may be, do small things. It's not about how much you do. It's just you want to get the flame, rekindle your flame in your soul, and automatically you'll rekindle your connection. So instead of being self-critical, why am I not doing, I would focus on very small steps, baby steps, but they're not baby steps. Means if it's a little more than you're able to do right now, you can't imagine what kind of revolution it creates in heaven and on earth. That would be my advice to you. But always good to have friends and others that help keep you, support you and keep you standing, to lean on, to keep you stronger. Don't do it, don't, don't isolate yourself. Because when you isolate yourself, it always becomes more, makes you weaker and more demoralized. Okay. Let me just go in order here, where we are. Okay. So now we have another issue now, the Supreme Court. Just last Wednesday, began hearing um, arguments in a new case regarding abortion and viability. So we know that um, 50 years ago, in December, the Supreme Court began hearing hearings which would ultimately become, later the next year, the ruling called Roe versus Wade, legalizing abortion, but they made the, connect, they made the qualification viability which means that once a child is viable and could live outside of the mother's womb, you're not allowed to abort. And they gave it a certain period, 25 weeks, I forgot already the exact amount of time. So someone's writing here, regarding the recent cases that are being brought to the U.S. Supreme Court, what is the Torah's perspective on this? What is the Torah's view, view regarding viability? I understand there are exceptions when a mother's life is at risk. Well, what about in general? Is there a certain time <coughs> that the fetus is considered viable as the SCOTUS suggests, the Supreme Court of the United States suggests? Notwithstanding politics and as from Jews, how would we view abortion in the, how should we view abortion in the U.S.? And should the standards be different for non-Jews? So there are clear halachas about this. I will just, uh, I don't know if this program is the place to state all these laws, but I will say the following. As soon as a child is conceived, that means something has happened. A father and mother in a sacred union conceived a child that God blessed with a soul. And the process of the fetus developing begins. The fact that we don't see much and what we call viability doesn't exist yet. In other words, if, God forbid, at that point there was no mother's womb, it does not change that something's happened, something fundamental has happened, something sacred has happened. There's no birth of a child without conception. So it's true, the Gemara talks about when does the soul enter, bishas pekeda, bishas, the different, uh, different uh, opinions. But there's no question that something happens. Secondly, human beings, who are we to determine? Is it technology that determines? That if technology suddenly is able to develop that a, a fetus is viable at, at, at 18 weeks or 15 weeks, then, then things change. Isn't there something more here than just technology? So you're dealing with the very matters of what it defines life and what is the sanctity of life. Now it's true, according to Allah, 
a fetus is not yet a viable separate entity. That's why if there's a threat, this especially when you're talking about Jews, when there's a threat to a mother's life, if the child was a complete life, you can't choose one life over another. But because the child is still so-called part of the mother, so the mother's life takes precedent. However, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to just, you're not even allowed to cut off, a, 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 you're not even allowed to scar yourself. Because you're not, you're not supposed to do anything that in any way mutilates and definitely not destroys a part of a person's body. So however you explain it, you're dealing with something that's not in our domain. And that's the real issue. Now the fact that there are exceptions, obviously the Torah itself tells you Allahus when abortion is allowed. And that's why you need it all for that. But overall, the concern would be, from a Torah perspective, that if people take this in their own hands, so there'll be situations where Allah would say, yes, you need to abort, or you're allowed to abort. But if we take it in our own hands, then someone can say, you know what? I got pregnant, and now I'm not so happy with it. Or it was a mistake. So you're also dealing with the sanctity of relationships, of intimacy. And that's where it gets far more complicated. Those that argue against the Supreme Court's decision 50 years ago, 49 years ago, was that not the question. They said, let the states determine. I'm not talking about from a religious point of view. Let the states determine. Why is the federal government getting involved and giving a congressional so-called a uh, constitutional right. And many have criticized that. And I understand the, the sensitivity of the matter. I've, I can tell you the hate mail I've received. Anywhere that there was a Supreme Court justice that they was suspected of overturning Roe versus Wade, many, many people, especially women, felt you're intruding on our personal rights. Now, I'm not here to tell them to take any rights away from anybody. Everybody has a right to do whatever they want, so to speak. But the question is, what are your standards? And when you're dealing with these matters, you're dealing with a government that has to protect the values and standards of the sanctity of life. And maybe the real issue is not abortion. The issue is, what, how do we look at relationships? Why should someone even get into a relationship and then become pregnant and, 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 uh, and say that was a mistake? Or I changed my mind. I personally have counseled many, many people who have undergone abortions and, how, and, they, and it's, not, it's not so simple. They live with it for a long time. Many feel that they murdered their own child. Now, I'm not going to be used in those words, but it's much more complicated than it seems. And I want to make it clear that anyone that's listening to this, I'm not here advocating one way or another. I am, most importantly, emphasizing what the Torah perspective is on this. And it begins with the, the sanctity of your life, the mother's life. Because imagine someone tampered with your question of viability or someone tampered with your sanctity and chose to put a put you away so to speak so the question whether the child is in the mother's womb or outside the mother's womb is not as significant as the question of the sanctity of life no matter where it is because if you go with that approach you can then go to the next step as the Greeks of old said hey if a child is born and has very severe mental illness or handicapped Put the child to death. Be compassionate to the child and his family. Why not? If you go with the approach that you decide, that's not a viable life. A, a child living in a wheelchair, God forbid, or a child without the certain resources and faculties at work. We don't tamper with these matters. These are matters of divine matters, and we try to stay away and just honor 
and celebrate our blessings. So that's a general perspective on the topic from a Torah point of view. Um, and that's what I'll say right now. If anybody wants to follow up with any further questions, please do so. Okay. Can you please speak about the passing of Dr. Feldman? Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, a prominent member and doctor in this community passed away, Dr. Feldman. Many of us were very close to him, benefited from him. He also served the Rebbe. Can you please comment on that? Well, the passing of any person is always a sad thing, especially for him and the family. I did know him. I actually fabringed two weeks ago Yutas Kislev, less than two weeks ago, Yutas Kislev in his home on President Street. And he was there, he participated, told some stories. And um, so it's a sad fact for all of us. And it's true, being part of a generation, the Rebbe's generation, the Rebbe, we served the Rebbe, he was there in Lamed Ches, Tav Shalamet Ches, I mentioned it, he mentioned it as well, by the Rebbe's heart attack. And throughout the years, served so many people. So anyone that's a public servant like that needs to, deserves to be mentioned. What shall I say? I mean... We look at it, on one hand there's a loss, on the other hand we have to get stronger and so-called fill the seat and fill the void. The family should be consoled and everyone else. Since I'm already mentioning, I might as well mention also recent pass- passings that were very sad and tragic, premature. Every passing is sad, but especially when it's premature. So God should bless our community and bless each one of you and everyone only with Simchas going forward until we finally march into Chaim Nitzchim, eternal life with Mashiach's coming. Another person writes, okay, I'll read the letter, but it's a little, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, the Tanya clearly states that we have two souls, one that is spiritual and godly and the other which animates our physical body. My opinion, the Rebbe in our generation was here to nourish and heal our godly spiritual soul, and Dr. Feldman, and I will add, and other doctors are here, to, were here to, are here to heal our physical bodies. What do we do now? Well, the first thing we do is we find another doctor if you need a physical doctor. Now, I wouldn't necessarily, as much as I love Dr. Feldman, the Rebbe is the Rebbe and Dr. Feldman is a doctor. And not, I wouldn't equate them exactly in the same type of indispensability. A Rebbe lives on, his teachings, his nitzchis, as I mentioned before. Dr. Feldman's soul lives on, but medical practice will have to be go to other doctors. The Rebbe and Dr. Feldman had something in common. They both never took a day off from their job for a vacation. They were always available 24 hours a day to help people. Well, again, I have trouble with this, this common denominator that Dr. Feldman emulated the Rebbe, that's what I would say, and worked tirelessly, and I commend him for that. What can we do as a community to ensure that the next generation has people that can step up and lead and, and heal us when needed? Of course, I'm not trying to say that anyone can replace the Rebbe, but if we, ha- but if we had people that were even half as good as they were at their jobs, we would be in good shape. May God Almighty bless us that no more tragedies should occur in our community. Well, with the Rebbe, remember the Rebbe lives on through us, Mazari Bechaim, Afu Bechaim, as his children are alive, that so too he's alive. Just as he served, he continues to serve. 
and he works through us. Dr. Feldman is a beautiful example of a dedicated servant, as I mentioned, and we learn from his lessons. I just want to be, make it very clear, the distinction. We look to the doctors, the other doctors in our community, and I'm sure new doctors that will arise, and hopefully they will learn lessons from Dr. Feldman, the qualities that he had, and learn lessons as well from others in dedication and being there for us. And that's what I would say about this. Okay. Let's now go to this question, and with that we shall conclude. How do we reconcile Tanya at the end of chapter 12 that says we should learn from Yosef to overlook the evil others do to us with all the statements in Tehillim where David prays for the downfall of his enemies? So more, more detailed, not to curse those who, subject, not to curse those who, you, who, who do you evil or to pray for their downfall. As we see in this story, in the story of Vayesha and Vayigash, this week's parasha. Mashpia, Magnemus, Reb Simon, greetings and blessings. My question is regarding the teaching the Altareb has in Tanya regarding learning from Yosef and his brothers. There the Altareb instructs us to overlook the evil done to us by others, as Yosef did with his brothers. He also brings the story of King David, who didn't curse Shimi. That's Nagaras Akedah Simen Chavhei. My question is that Tilim is replete with King David cursing his enemies and praying for their downfall. Note, he's not just praying for their downfall of the wicked, which he does, which he does too. He specifically calls out his enemies and prays for their ruin. There are so many psalms like this, I don't know where to begin quoting, but look at Psalm 52, Psalm 109, just as examples. If you need more, I can provide. Even with Shimi, while he doesn't strike him down then and there, he ensures that his son Shlemet dispatches of him. What lessons are we to learn from King David and from Tehillim? Okay, very good question. So first of all, let's spell it out. With Shimi, the Alter Rebbe brings in the Gerasakei to Simechavhei that he's talking there that Kol anyone who gets anger, angry, is like Ki'ilu Eved as if they, they, they transgressed idolatry. Why? Because he doesn't see it coming from God. Anything that happens, meaning something that you're hurt, then God wanted to be. And if it wasn't that person, someone would come for someone else. And he brings one of the proofs, is from Shimi and King David. King David said that God caused him to curse me. The Alter Rebbe says, where do you see he cursed him? But the mere fact that he cursed him means that he had the thought, and that came from God. And yet later, I get Alter Rebbe says that that's merely the art in matters on this, that here is trying to hurt David. So David realized God wants that to happen. It's not Shimi's doing, even though Shimi could be punished for his bad choice. But when it comes to Mil Shemaya, you see that Mesh Rabbeinu, which means heavenly matters, says, Mesha got angry. So we see he did get angry because it wasn't about someone personally affecting him. He was got angry because it was something that you were te- de- desecrating God. So first answer you can give is, when it came to a personal matter, David HaMelech was, was on, on sword as divine. But, when, but the, when the times when David calls for their ruin, it's not because of personal, because he sees that they're challenging God, that they're fine, they're enemies of God. The fact that David also suffered from their hands could be a detail of it, but the main thing is because of Hashem. So that's the first thing you can say. So he's not calling their ruin because, because, it was, because they personally affected him, but because they are challenging God. As far as Yosef goes, 
we know that it says in the end of chapter 12, the Alter Rebbe says, as we learn from Zayar, that Yosef, yes, he overlooked the fact what the brothers did to him. That means when someone does something to you, that's the Avedi Mayach Shalatalev, as he explains there, that you don't reciprocate, you don't, have, you don't exact vengeance, like, like Yosef. But then the question can be asked, don't we see that Yosef did put the brothers through a lot of agony? First, when, he t- t- he, he, uh, when they came the first time, so what did he do? He imprisoned Shimon and all the aggravation that caused and caused Yaakov. And he knew it caused aggravation. Then later, when they came back, with, when he assisted, they come with Binyamin again torture. Yaakov was so adamant not to let Binyamin go. He didn't want to lose him. And Yehuda had to promise, I will vouch for him. I will be his guarantor. And then hiding the, the goblet, the cup in, in Binyamin, he put them through tremendous aggravation. And look at the beginning of Ayigash, where Yehuda finally confronts Yosef and begs him, take me instead of Binyamin. I mean, the whole story of, if, if it was all divine, as, as Joseph told his brothers, why did he put them through this? So the Semach Tzedek has a maimer in, the, in, uh, in Eratera, where he explains, because he was helping mitigate the kapora, the atonement for what the brothers did. This was not his personal vengeance. Personal, he said clearly, this was God. This is not about you. God wanted me to be here in Mitzrayim. And on the contrary, I came here to save your life, save everybody's life. But he wanted to somewhat soften the blow because he knew they did do a crime. Tzaddik explains it. He brings many sources. Then he says, at the end, they still needed punishment. But Yosef was able to buy time until the end of the second temple's destruction, when they destroyed with the ten martyrs, they were then punished for what the brothers did. But he softened it, he made it weaker, at least for that period in time, as the Al-Tamak Tzedek explains. So here we have both aspects. When it comes to personal, now there we learn absolutely from Yosef. When it comes, and, and when it comes to, however, something that God wants, and it's for God's benefit, that's a different story. You're not doing it for your own personal gain or personal vengeance and personal feelings. So that's the answer. Okay, with that we conclude. Everyone have a happy Zeis Hanukkah. May the flames of Hanukkah burn forever, not just burn every year, but spiritually continue to burn in your heart and your soul and illuminating and warming the world around you. May we be Zeichim finally merit to go to the Gula Mitzvah Vashlema with a light the divine light will constantly, entirely encompass existence. A world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And we are here every, eight, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life is applied. Please go to giftofmeaning.com to help us continue and perpetuate and expand this work. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.